0: there's a lot of noise uh, out there, but I think in terms of clarity, I mean, I like I like your work purpose. I often think we shouldn't be communicating anything without a sense of what we want people to do as a consequence of receiving that message.
1: episode of communicating purpose i'm john higginson and i believe that when you concentrate on your purpose why you do what you do rather than what you do then you'll be far more passionate about it and your audience will be far more switched on and engaged i call this the power of purpose this week i'm joined by mark funnel communications and campaign director at the national trust the national trust owns almost two hundred and fifty thousand hectares of land including more than 500 historic houses, castles, archaeological and industrial monuments, gardens, parks and natural reserves. The National Trust also operates internal campaigns around nature and wildlife, heritage and landscapes. Before joining the National Trust, Mark worked at DEFRA, the Forestry Commission and the Environment Agency. Mark, thanks so much for joining me. Very welcome, John. Nice to be here. So before we talk about the National Trust, I thought it'd be really good to just ask you about your career. How did you get to where you are today?
0: Hmm. Well, quite a sort of tortuous journey in in one sense, in that um, I came very solidly from the world of public sector and government communications, if you like. So uh, after five years of magazine publishing, I started out uh, doing more editorial work, actually, at the Environment Agency way back in the year 2000, Uh, various roles, including in things like operational communications, so things like flood response uh, comms, uh, and then External relations, uh, eventually, so the world of sort of public affairs, uh, government relations, bit of community and customer stuff in there as well. And then moved off to the forestry mission, which was at the time, going through the process of breaking itself into bits uh, because of devolution. Um, so no longer a cross-border entity. And that was a very interesting time as well, because that was just after the big forest sell-off debacle, you remember,
1: yes. uh,
0: when uh, there was a big U-turn from the government on proposals to sell off the public forest estate. Uh, So quite a kind of turbulent political time. And then into into DEFRA, I did a stint uh, briefly as director of comms for for maternity leave, did a a range of roles, including looking after communications for all the kind of arm's length bodies of DEFRA. So Environment Agency Natural England, uh, which was really interesting. Uh, Forestry Commission and various others. So, so quite a, a kind of environmental and naturey background, uh, and I guess that's the, the thing that uh, finally uh, really linked across to the current role, where the National Trust is looking very much more to what it can do on climate and, and nature right now.
1: Yeah. Well, I remember that uh, U-turn very well. It was, it was, I think, one of the first U-turns of David Cameron's uh, government. Uh, I was a political editor of a national newspaper, Metro, at the time, uh, and it seemed like it was kind of the end of the world for the government at that. People were almost saying, how can they even, uh, uh, how can they ever come back from this? Uh, uh, and, and here we are today. Um, and there's been yet another U-turn from uh, yet another Conservative uh, Prime Minister. And yet again, it feels like the end of the world. Um But just um, before we move on to some of the things that you might be opposing from this government, because I know that lots of the uh, green groups that that, uh, uh, we're in contact with um, aren't very pleased with uh, some of the things that this current uh, um, prime minister has come up with. Tell us a little bit more about the National Trust. What is its purpose? It's interesting because
0: I think if you were to ask a number of people that question, you get a multiplicity of answers. And I think that's partly because of the long history of the organisation. It's been around for 127 years now. And actually when it was started, it was started by some very uh, powerful campaigners. Octavia Hill, Uh, she was uh, foremost amongst them. She believed uh, very strongly in uh, everyone being able to have access to green space and beautiful places. And that was obviously in the backdrop of the Industrial Revolution at the back of the, the 19th century. Um, so so we came from a campaigning place uh, in point of origin. And I think because probably a lot of people would associate the National Trust with lovely old houses and, and maybe a scone and a cup of tea, uh, that, that was obviously a big part of what the Trust was doing in the, in the sort of mid part of the 20th century, as all these um, houses uh, that were very difficult to run, very expensive, were able to be uh, taken over by the Trust and taken on for posterity if you like in perpetuity for the nation um, and that i think became very much one of the defining characteristics then of the 20th century in our identity um there is actually a sort of legal bit which sounds a bit dull but it's really interesting uh, from the point of view of a couple of things happening right now it's 1907 the act that originally uh, underpinned the national trust and i'm just going to read you a little section from it um, it talks about the trust's um, founding principles being about the purpose of promoting the preservation for the benefit of the nation, lands of beauty or historic interest, and preservation of their natural aspect features and animal and plant life. So all the way back then, those incredibly far-sighted, both architects, legal architects, and founders of the Trust were thinking, it's really important, we're clear, that we're here to promote the importance of these things, not just those things being important in of themselves. So your point about purpose at the top of the Mm -hmm. podcast, I think, is is key to the National Trust and its identity uh, and we often come back to that uh, that underpinning because when times are are, are a bit stormy actually it, it serves us incredibly well through those periods
1: yeah well that's what I wanted to come to actually some of those kind of uh, stormy times because um you'll know that uh, uh, Caroline Sidley who works for you is a, is, is a great friend of uh, mine and my wife's Clodas, and um you are at the centre of lots of big, big storms. I think because you know a very diverse uh, range of members you have. Each of them feels that they know what the uh, National Trust stands for, and and you've probably got to navigate quite a lot there. And and uh, and so, how do you do that? One one recent example that I can think uh, in, in my mind of one of the storms you had is when you kind of opened up the. Uh, of National Trust land to the to the public uh, when it was locked down, and uh, and that seemed like a great idea. But I'm sure some of your members thought, well, why am I paying for my membership if everyone gets to it gets to go around it? Tell us about how you um, managed to neg- negotiate some of those storms that you're in.
0: Yeah, and that was uh, a really extraordinary time, wasn't it? Because obviously, uh, people craved uh, access to. To nature and to beautiful places. So you're right. We made a made a judgment call on that to say, actually, it's, it's more important uh, that those places are are open and available to people to get to uh, than anything else. I mean, this, we're talking about free to access places here. So the houses they're all shut at that time. You know, obviously because of the the, the COVID uh, restrictions in place uh, around social distancing, etc. So. So it was a very conscious decision because it, we felt that's what the nation needed most. Uh, and actually what we saw brilliantly through that time was a whole bunch of people come and access those places who have never done so before. You know, We saw more diversity of all kinds actually through that period of, uh, of visitor um, with, with a range of experiences but very largely a very positive experience. Um, and it's something that we're trying to, to obviously use the, the kind of momentum of now. Um, there were a small number of people that I think felt uh, actually, you know, d- don't uh, over, overwhelm our beautiful countryside and beautiful places uh, w- with great numbers of people that they're not going to look after, which, of course, is something we, we, would, we would be very wary of and, and you know, concerned about ourselves. Um, and actually, I think one of the learning points from all of that is, you know, don't assume that people coming to those places the first time are going to know. You know, how they tend to operate, what the sort of orthodoxies of those places are in terms of things like the countryside code and things like the, the kind of, I suppose, the, the, the norms of keeping dogs on leads around cattle, that sort of stuff that I think an awful lot of people do know about. So I think there's a, there's a big kind of challenge for us there um, in terms of how we, how we uh, help people understand um, what uh, being in the
1: countryside involves, being respectful, if you like, to, to what's there yeah well that well that sounds great and i'm sure lots of kind of people that might be from a kind of urban environment that that, that hadn't been out to the uh, to your estate before got to see them and that's and that's really exciting for them uh, and i just know from my own experience even small local parks that, that that might might have been near all of us that we might not have visited we kind of visit for the first time and see people there practically blinking out of their houses during lockdown as we kind of took our daily walk um and uh, I think that was quite a positive thing to come out of uh, that, that um, largely negative uh, lockdown experience. So, tell us a little bit more about your recent Green Not Grey campaign. What's that about?
0: Yeah, you, you will have seen, obviously, I think all of your listeners as well, uh, that there's been quite a lot of the media in the last couple of weeks about, about, I suppose, several areas in particular of concern for us, National Trust, and, and other environmental NGOs as well. I think the first of those is um, the that the government is is looking to uh, basically take all of the EU legislation that came across uh, when we left the EU, uh, which currently you know sits sits on on the books and currently we we are subject to is going to look to, in effect, do away with all of that come the end of next year. So December 2023, You know, it all goes, um, come, come what may actually, uh, and with no credible plans to uh, put in place uh, alternative arrangements as far as we have seen so far. Now, just to spell it out, we are talking about things like protections to nature here. We're talking about protections to the environment. We're talking about fundamental uh, protections that, in effect, mean the places that, that you and I and, and your listeners care about uh, are, are actually uh, not uh, subject to uh, unkind un of trammelled uh, planning or infrastructure growth or uh, irresponsible, reckless behaviour from industry or, or, or anyone else. Actually, so th- those protections will go. The government hasn't said anything about how it intends to replace them between now and then. So that's obviously a, a big, serious area of concern in its own right. There are two further ones, however. One is all the brilliant work that's been done over four or five years now with uh, the farming industry to come up with a new payment scheme that would be better than what was there under uh, the old common agricultural policy you remember when we were in the EU, which would basically be about encouraging and farmers to look after uh, public goods, so-called public goods. So that's everything from the soils uh, that their farming depends on to to water quality, you know, the river watercourses around their farms through to, to the air and what they emit in terms of pollutants to the air to incentivise them to look after those natural resources more. Now, there's very, very strong indications initially, certainly a couple of weeks ago, the government was looking to row right back on that stuff. All the meetings on Elms, as it's called, went from people's diaries. Uh, and there was lots and lots of uh, very, very credible information coming through uh, you know respectable journalists in the, in the department to say actually that this stuff's at risk and the third area is these new investment zones which i suppose this goes to the heart of the of the of the kind of green versus gray debate investment zones that the government ha- are now taking expressions of interest from from local authorities so you know if you're a local authority and you think you want to be able to really put your foot to the floor and boost development of of, of any kind and really. it could be new housing in green belts it could be uh you know big big kind of uh, industrial parks but actually um you can do that without any of the current planning constraints in place uh, there again there's just nothing from the government on how they would either make sure that happened in a responsible way for the environment, or that local people and local democracy would be involved in those investment zones. So local authorities, you know, as things currently stand, uh, would not be a part of that planning process. Now, all three of those alone would be any of them alone would be really concerning. Taken together, actually, they are deeply, deeply concerning. You can think of the, the cumulative impacts if we frankly don't get this stuff right. On nature and the environment. So so yes, we've taken a very strong stand on that. So have the other environmental NGOs, uh, the other charities. Uh, and government, I think, um, is listening from what we can gather.
1: Yeah. And actually, because of who you are, um, and because of your membership, which I'm sure lots of your members are, are very conservative, and you have to be a political, it's unusual, isn't it, for you to actually take stances on government, government policy? I'm, I'm sure there's stuff all the time for which you personally um, might, might, might be pulling your hair out about, but but you choose not to uh, comment on it. Um, and is that really, does it help to have a clear sense of purpose that then leads you to say, right, this is something that we will get involved in as a, a political organisation. We are actually on this occasion going to stand up because then it makes a, a much stronger difference, doesn't it? Because if you're if you are constantly saying the government's doing this wrong or that wrong, um, then your voice would be quite weak. But if you've got a clear sense of purpose and you only stand up um, when it really matters to you, suddenly it, it, it's a more powerful voice. Do you do, do you agree with yeah, that? Yeah, I
0: think that is that is absolutely right. I mean, the last time, and this was well before my time at National Trust, we took a big stand like this it was back in 2011 at uh, that time on new planning reforms that the government was wanting to bring forward. So it doesn't happen very often. And I think you're right. Therefore, when we do it, it does carry considerable weight. Um, we don't do it lightly. And actually, we had a very, you can imagine, a big soul searching internal conversation about, well, what are our red lines here? You know, And we, and we made those clear uh, four or five days ago when we did a, a big article with the Sunday Times. Uh, what are our red lines here? And, and how, how are we clear about What needs to be kept uh, intact or reassured about, you know, what would be transgressed such that we would get very, very, you know, very active about this. And and maybe we'll come back to some of the options there. Um, So it is unusual. It isn't something we do lightly. We are concerned enough in this instance uh, to do, and it would be the same with any government. It it wouldn't matter, you know, if it was a Labour government, if it was any any, coalition government, any government of any hue, um, this is not to do with uh, party politicking. It is to do with the proposals themselves uh, that, that we're taking completely objectively. Sometimes we are challenged on this. You know, you shouldn't be getting involved in stuff like this because it is p- political. We, we, we would challenge that. We would say that this transcends politics. This is about threats on nature. Uh, and actually, we can see how you know real and, and present they are.
1: Um, What have you been most proud of during your time at National Trust?
0: We went through, as you probably remember, a really tough period, not just in the pandemic, because we had uh, to shut all our properties. We had 80% of our staff on furlough. um, And the organisation obviously was losing an awful lot of money through that period. In the end, we lost around about 215 million, £220 million in a year of revenue because of those uh, properties being shut. That was tough enough, but then um, we'd been committed over a long period of time to releasing a report about the historic links of our, of our properties, properties in our care uh, with historic slavery and colonialism. And it was something that had been planned for a very long time, pre the pandemic. We decided, you know, this is, this is just work that is in the national interest because it's just uh, research into those links. And so we released a report, and you may then remember just how um, incendiary, frankly, that was in terms of uh, some people's views of that. We had a huge amount of criticism from certain parts of the media, from certain uh, politicians, who I think took it as an affront against um, British history and and how great, um, you know, and and frankly positive many aspects of British history are, which of course was not at all its intent. It was about just revealing an aspect of history and, and shining a light on it and just being objective about that. But it meant that we were suddenly dragged into the so-called culture wars um, in, in a very big way. And I suppose reflecting on that, what I was very proud of was just how we never we never lost our our kind of sense of why we did what we did um we, we i think acquitted ourselves in a in a way that felt appropriately true to our values you know we you know we we were very objective uh we tried to maintain a sense of you know i suppose propriety and proportionality in our communications and what we said and did uh, we, we then responded to the charity commission looking into this uh, in a very positive way again about how it is part of our role to do this and that actually, some aspects of history are challenging, are difficult, but then we shouldn't shy away from them. And actually, everyone internally conducted themselves incredibly well, even when under a huge amount of pressure. Actually, and, and I think really feeling it. So I was very, very proud of that, and very proud that we didn't, you know, we didn't apologise, we didn't U-turn, we didn't backtrack because actually it, there was nothing wrong with what we did. Um, so we there, there was some courage, I think, there as well.
1: Great, and I think that's a great example thereof having a clear sense of what your values are, what your purpose is, and then you don't get pushed around as much. Because we know that with the uh, National Trust, people feel like they own the National Trust, even if they're not a member of the National Trust. You know, in its very nature, they feel that they care about what happens to those historic buildings and bits of land for which you have custodialship ship for. Um, Lots of our listeners are communications professionals as well, and so they like to know what, where you get your news from, and that's in your personal, mm. you know, at the weekend as well as as well as for work. What do you read? What do you, what social media do you use, and what do you listen to and watch?
0: Yeah, I I've, I've become a complete podcast junkie. I don't know. I don't live in North London, by the way. If you're thinking about recent illusions to podcasts, so um, two podcasts that I'm completely addicted to are the rest is politics and the news agents, uh, which I think are both just brilliant at kind of, you know, bringing you into uh, aspects of of, of the big stories uh, in a really thoughtful and quite um, uh, analytical way, but with great personalities uh, involved as well. I mean, Rory Stewart, um, Alistair Campbell, Emily Maitlis, John Sopal, these are all really interesting people in their own rights. I absolutely love The Week. Uh, because it does set out such a broad uh, range of opinions, and, and I and I love that because y- you can then really make up your mind having kind of thought about lots of different perspectives on something. Um, and I think it does such a good job of being super concise and editorially, it's just so it's so sharp. Um, I love Guardian Online. I think Guardian Online is is just such a, a completely brilliant website. So I've, I'll be looking at that every day. Um, and then I, I, I read the Times on a Saturday, partly because it's just so good on political gossip and gets such good inside track uh, from uh, sources and politicians. Um, but, but I think it's a great paper as well. Um, I suppose, finally, I just, like probably all of your listeners, uh, have become a complete Twitter addict. I mean, I, I didn't used to be when I was in uh, government and the public sector, <laughs> partly because we had to be a bit uh, careful about how we, you know, in terms of things like ministerial codes of conduct, etc. Um, so I was trying not to be drawn like a moth to the light, but hey, I, I am now, I'm, I'm in there. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it is extraordinary how immediate and visceral it can be in its impact.
1: And how about on a Sunday? Are you, are you taking a day off news or are you watching any of those <laughs> political programs or reading a Sunday paper?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly, it's a bit sad to admit, but I love, um, uh, you know, the Week in Politics and Radio 4. I do um tend to that's probably the point at which i'll read the week but i'm hugely into cricket so if i really want to switch off i'll be mm-hmm. listening to a cricket podcast great
1: um what do you think makes a really good
0: message certainly a clear sense of what you want your audience to do with it um you know there's there's a lot of noise uh, out there but i think in terms of clarity I mean I like I like your work purpose I often think we shouldn't be communicating anything without a sense of what we want people to do as a consequence of receiving that message um, so I think a sense of clarity purpose outcome is crucial I think uh, uh, some personality as well I'm mean, having worked in government where I'm in mean, the kind of government you know corporate uh, machine if you like would would often find a way to make a message as uncontroversial and almost, un, uh, I suppose, unrebuttable as possible. Um, so it would end up almost sapping it often of, of any kind of personality and character. And one of the things I've found in the National Trust is actually the National Trust has got a wonderful tone of voice when it gets it right. And, and so there's something about the organization's personality coming through in a way that feels consistent uh, and, and resonant as part of
1: its brand great and um if you if you could have one message to share with our audience of kind of uh, communications professionals what would it be
0: I, I mean i i've always gotten the most out of times in my career just by making a big change and and, and doing something quite different um always really challenging but always have grown from those experiences immensely uh, and if i could be really parochial it would be hopefully you've got a sense of the national trust not just being about chintz and scones and cups of tea from this podcast uh, and if you have for example we, we are really big on climate and climate action um, come and have an, another look at us uh, and see if we're for you now if you maybe didn't think we were
1: Mark Funnel, communications and campaigns director at the National Trust thanks very much for joining me John Higginson on communicating purpose thanks ever so much John thank you